This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, visit LibriVox.org. Recorded by George Pilling. www.storysales.com. Jude the Obscure by Thomas Hardy. Part Third at Melchester. Chapter Three. The seventy young women, of ages varying in the main from nineteen to one and twenty, though several were older, who at this date filled the species of nunnery known as the training school at Melchester, formed a very mixed community, which included the daughters of mechanics, curates, surgeons, shopkeepers, farmers, dairymen, soldiers, sailors, and villagers. They sat in the large schoolroom of the establishment on the evening previously described, and word was passed round that Sue Bridehead had not come in at closing time. She went out with her young man, said a second-year student who knew about young men, and Miss Tracy saw her at the station with him. She'll have it hot when she does come. She said he was her cousin, observed a youthful new girl. That excuse has been made a little too often in this school to be effectual in saving our souls, said the head girl of the year dryly. The fact was that, only twelve months before, there had occurred a lamentable seduction of one of the pupils who had made the same statement in order to gain meetings with her lover. The affair had created a scandal, and the management had consequently been rough on cousins ever since. At nine o'clock the names were called, Sue's being pronounced three times sonorously by Miss Tracy, without eliciting an answer. At quarter past nine the seventy stood up to sing the evening hymn, and then knelt down to prayers. After prayers they went in to supper, and every girl's thought was, where is Sue Bridehead? Some of the students, who had seen Jude from the window, felt that they would not mind risking her punishment for the pleasure of being kissed by such a kindly-faced young man. Hardly one among them believed in the cousinship. Half an hour later they all lay in their cubicles, their tender feminine faces upturned to the flaring gas-jets, which at intervals stretched down the long dormitories, every face bearing the legend, The Weaker, upon it, as the penalty of the sex wherein they were molded, which by no possible exertion of their willing hearts and abilities could be made strong while the inexorable laws of nature remain what they are. They formed a pretty, suggestive, pathetic sight, of whose pathos and beauty they were themselves unconscious, and would not discover till, amid the storms and strains of after years, with their injustice, loneliness, childbearing, and bereavement, their minds would revert to this experience as to something which had been allowed to slip past them insufficiently regarded. One of the mistresses came in to turn out the lights, and before doing so gave a final glance at Sue's cot, which remained empty, and at her little dressing-table at the foot, which, like all the rest, was ornamented with various girlish trifles, framed photographs being not the least conspicuous among them. Sue's table had a moderate show, two men in their filigree and velvet frames standing together beside her looking-glass. "'Who are these men? Did she ever say?' asked the mistress. Strictly speaking, relations' portraits only are allowed on these tables, you know. One, the middle-aged man, said a student in the next bed, is the schoolmaster she served under, Mr. Phillotson. And the other, this undergraduate in cap and gown, who is he? Oh, he is a friend, or was. She has never told his name. Was it either of these two who came for her? No. You are sure t'was not the undergraduate? Quite. He was a young man with a black beard. The lights were promptly extinguished, and till they fell asleep the girls indulged in conjectures about Sue, 
and wondered what game she had carried on in London and at Christminster before she came here, some of the more restless ones getting out of bed and looking from the mullion windows at the vast west front of the cathedral opposite and the spire rising behind it. When they awoke the next morning, they glanced into Sue's nook to find it still without a tenant. After the early lessons by gaslight and half-toilet, and when they had come up to dress for breakfast, the bell of the entrance gate was heard to ring loudly. The mistress of the dormitory went away and presently came back to say that the principal's orders were that nobody was to speak to Bridehead without permission. When accordingly Sue came into the dormitory to hastily tidy herself, looking flushed and tired, she went to her cubicle in silence, none of them coming out to greet her or to make inquiry. When they had gone downstairs, they found that she did not follow them into the dining hall to breakfast, and they then learnt that she had been severely reprimanded and ordered to a solitary room for a week, there to be confined, and take her meals, and do all her reading. At this the seventy murmured, the sentence being, they thought, too severe. A round robin was prepared and sent in to the principal, asking for a remission of Sue's punishment. No notice was taken. Towards evening, when the geography mistress began dictating her subject, the girls in the class sat with folded arms. "'You mean that you are not going to work?' said the mistress at last. "'I may as well tell you that it has been ascertained that the young man Bridehead stayed out with was not her cousin, for the very good reason that she has no such relative. We have written to Kirsminster to ascertain.' "'We are willing to take her word,' said the head girl." This young man was discharged from his work at Christminster for drunkenness and blasphemy in public houses, and he has come here to live entirely to be near her. However, they remained stolid and motionless, and the mistress left the room to inquire from her superiors what was to be done. Presently, towards dusk, the pupils, as they sat, heard exclamations from the first year's girls in an adjoining classroom, and one rushed in to say that Sue Bridehead had got out of the back window of the room in which she had been confined, escaped in the dark across the lawn, and disappeared. How she had managed to get out of the garden nobody could tell, as it was bounded by the river at the bottom, and the side door was locked. They went and looked at the empty room, the casement between the middle mullions of which stood open. The lawn was again searched with the lantern, every bush and shrub being examined, but she was nowhere hidden. Then the porter of the front gate was interrogated, and on reflection he said that he remembered hearing a sort of splashing in the stream at the back, but he had taken no notice, thinking some ducks had come down the river from above. "'She must have walked through the river,' said a mistress. "'Or drowned it herself,' said the porter. The mind of the matron was horrified, not so much at the possible death of Sue as at the possible half-column detailing that event in all the newspapers, which, added to the scandal of the year before, would give the college an unenviable notoriety for many months to come. More lanterns were procured and the river examined, and then at last, on the opposite shore, which was open to the field, some little boot tracks were discerned in the mud, which left no doubt that the too excitable girl had waded through a depth of water reaching nearly to her shoulders, for this was the chief river of the county, and was mentioned in all the geography books with respect. As Sue had not brought disgrace upon the school by drowning herself, the matron began to speak superciliously of her, and to express gladness that she was gone. On the self-same evening, Jude sat in his lodgings by the close gate. Often at this hour, after dusk, he would enter the silent close and stand opposite the house that contained Sue and watch the shadows of the girls' heads passing to and fro upon the blinds and wish he had nothing else to do but to sit reading and learning all day what many of the thoughtless inmates despised. 
But tonight, having finished tea and brushed himself up, he was deep in the perusal of the 29th volume of Pusey's Library of the Fathers, a set of books which he had purchased of a second-hand dealer at a price that seemed to him to be one of miraculous cheapness for this invaluable work. He fancied he heard something rattle lightly against his window, and then he heard it again. Certainly someone had thrown gravel. He rose and gently lifted the sash. Jude! From below. Sue! Yes, it is. Can I come up without being seen? Oh, yes. Then don't come down. Shut the window. Jude waited, knowing that she could enter easily enough, the front door being opened merely by a knob which anybody could turn, as in most old country towns. He palpitated at the thought that she had fled to him in her trouble, as he had fled to her in his. What counterparts they were! He unlatched the door of his room, heard a stealthy rustle on the dark stairs, and in a moment she appeared in the light of his lamp. He went up to seize her hand, and found she was clammy as a marine deity, and that her clothes clung to her like the robes upon the figures in the Parthenon frieze. "'I'm so cold,' she said through her chattering teeth. "'Can I come sit by your fire, Jude?' She crossed to his little grate and very little fire, but as the water dripped from her as she moved, the idea of drying herself was absurd. "'Whatever have you done, darling?' he asked with alarm, the tender epithet slipping out unawares. "'Walk through the largest river in the county, that's what I've done. They locked me up for being out with you, and it seemed so unjust that I couldn't bear it, so I got out of the window and escaped across the stream.' She had begun the explanation in her usual slightly independent tones, but before she had finished, the thin pink lips trembled, and she could hardly refrain from crying. "'Dear Sue,' he said, "'you must take off all your things, and let me see. You must borrow some of the landlady. I'll ask her.' "'No, no, don't let her know, for God's sake. We are so near the school they'll come after me.' "'Then you must put on mine. You don't mind?' "'Oh, no. My Sunday suit, you know. It is close here.' In fact, everything was close and handy in Jude's single chamber, because there was not room for it to be otherwise. He opened a drawer, took out his best dark suit, and giving the garments a shake, said, Now, how long shall I give you? Ten minutes. Jude left the room and went into the street, where he walked up and down. A clock struck half-past seven, and he returned. Sitting in his only armchair, he saw a slim and fragile being masquerading as himself on a Sunday, so pathetic in her defenselessness that his heart felt big with the sense of it. On two other chairs before the fire were her wet garments. She blushed as he sat down beside her, but only for a moment. I suppose, Jude, it is odd that you should see me like this and all my things hanging there. Yet what nonsense! They are only a woman's clothes, sexless cloth and linen. I wish I didn't feel so ill and sick. Will you dry my clothes now? Please do, Jude. I'll get a lodging by and by. It's not late yet. No, you shan't, if you are ill. You must stay here. Dear, dear Sue, what can I get for you? I don't know. I can't help shivering. I wish I could get warm. Jude put on her his greatcoat in addition, and then ran out to the nearest public house, once he returned with a little bottle in his hand. Here's six of best brandy, he said. Now you drink it, dear, all of it. I can't out of the bottle, can I? Jude fetched the glass from the dressing table and administered the spirit in some water. She gasped a little, but gulped it down and lay back in the armchair. She then began to relate circumstantially her experiences since they had parted, but in the middle of her story her voice faltered, her head nodded, and she ceased. She was in a sound sleep. Jude, dying of anxiety lest she should have caught a chill which might permanently injure her, was glad to hear the regular breathing. 
he softly went nearer to her and observed that a warm flush now rose her hitherto blue cheeks and felt that her hanging hand was no longer cold. Then he stood with his back to the fire regarding her and saw in her almost a divinity. End of Part 3 Chapter 3